Just a little friendly reminder out there to all you listeners, make sure to subscribe to the National Land Realty Podcast. No matter what platform you use, there is a subscribe button. Make sure to click that. That's how we measure our success and measure the value that we bring to the table. Welcome to episode number 67 for the National Land Realty Podcast, where we discuss all things land. Our goal here is to inform, educate, and entertain those of you who own land or are interested in the buying and selling of land throughout the United States. My name is Mac Christian, and I am the Chief Marketing Officer here at National Land Realty. I'll be your host for this episode. Veterans Day is near, and the timing could not be more perfect for this discussion. Corey Bowes is the Director of Commercial for National Land Realty. Corey served as a law enforcement officer for 15 years, and he is passionate about helping first responders. Today's conversation is about the leverageable skills that first responders obtain throughout their careers that can enable them to be successful in other fields such as real estate. The goal of this conversation is to highlight the strengths that all service-related professions develop, whether that be soldiers or teachers, and how those skills can be transferred towards successful careers in the private sector. Now, sit back and enjoy. All right, so I am sitting here talking to Corey Bose. He is our director of commercial here at National Land Realty. Corey has 15 years of experience in, in working with real estate and comes from a, uh, a police background. And today we're talking about leverageable skills from first responders, military, police, and sort of that transition that takes place from going from uh, government employment or emergency first responders into professional business life. And in this case, in particular, are land sales and real estate. And, and Corey, having gone through this transition, um, can speak to this very, very well. And and I think that, that you see a lot of things that I think that I see or in a lot of leadership sees that there's a lot of leverageable skills there, but it's hard for someone making that transition to find them right out of the gate. And um, so, so tell me a little bit sort of about your perspective here and and sort of what you see in terms of what's the biggest challenge in, in sort of that that primary um, when you reintegrate to to private industry. Yeah, and I'll, I'll lay the groundwork for the listeners who they need to know kind of how I got here, which is so I spent 15 years in, in law enforcement in 2008, started with the North Carolina Highway Patrol um, as a as a trooper here in uh, the Raleigh market or Raleigh area. And uh, and I did that for three or four years on the road, got a lot of experiences working um, in the capital and uh, working our major highways and everything that came with that. But then um Three years after that, I ended up transitioning over DMV license and theft as another lateral within the state. So I was still a state agent and started doing auto theft investigations uh, for the agency there for a handful of years and uh, got into working with the Homeland Security and actually got on as a full-time task force officer with the Homeland Security unit here in Cary. Um, and then when that played its course, I went over and did private security work for a local uh, software company doing corporate security and executive protection stuff. So I've had multiple hats that I've worn, you know, throughout my career uh, as an LEO. And I had gone through multiple forms of training um, 
and I spent a lot of my time during or ex- trying to hone my, my skills for uh, interrogation tactics because a lot of my career was was done in investigations. And so um, with time and experience, I was always interviewing people not only on the streets, but also uh, while in custody. Um, and as those uh, skills started to improve, I was able to start to build rapport with all walks of life over time. And I've been able to now that I've transitioned back into real estate. So real estate was my first uh, career right out of school, but then the great recession really set me back. So that's when I got into law enforcement and now I've come back to what I did. So it's just a, a you know, a reemergence back into real estate, but my time in law enforcement has actually made me a much, much better broker. Um, it's provided me with grit, which I didn't have previously in my early twenties. Um, it's provided me the opportunity to understand um, how to control your temperament and very emotional uh, conversations, which real estate is often a, a an emotion-driven transaction for so many people. Um, and then it's also allowed me to knock down the barriers that you often get either with buyer or seller um, to be able to find that, that mutual ground that you need to actually put transactions together. And so uh, those that time and grade in, in law enforcement has really allowed me to repackage things that I've learned in that, that career to bring them over here. And it's just made me a better broker. And and you spoke, you know, we, we were kind of chatting here before we started and, and you spoke to, to an area that, that I think is really interesting as far as when, when somebody comes out of an emergency first responder position, police, military, where um, you sort of feel stuck as to where you're doing, not knowing if you can go to to private sector and sort of because because you're kind of conditioned to to react and and can conduct yourself in a certain way. And it can, and it can feel like that's kind of sort of like a, a an unjumpable hoop, right? Like like you can't and sort of getting your, your head across that sort of chasm there. Can you speak to that a little bit? You know what what you sort of see with other people that go through this? Yeah, you know, it's it's an odd little um paradox. Whereas I had experienced what institutionalized look like when I had had the chance to speak with people who were transitioning out of prison, who had been there most of their lives because they went through these day-to-day routines that they got set in and they felt like that was who they were, right? Um, all these, the hierarchy of what they had to follow as a prisoner internally on the on the clock and the schedule. And then later on in my law enforcement career, as you start to speak with some of the older men and women who's got a lot more time and grade than you do, you realize like, huh, institutionalized doesn't just mean prison. <laughs> it can mean also government work. Um, and that goes for, you know, military because military and law enforcement are typically hand in hand. That's a big transition. People feel like they can repurpose what they learned and, and the armed forces over in, into law enforcement. But we go through the same thing where it's a daily, a daily routine, very strict hierarchy of chain of command. You're following processes. Typically you'll have three or four massive 
manuals and then you've got your law books and all these kind of come together and they framework what you do on a day-to-day basis in your career. And then you also find that, you know, law enforcement or firefighters or nurses or teachers, they all hang out together in their same pods, right? Just as prisoners do. And, you know, they're, you're always together with people who are in the same situation that you are. And then it just, you, you start to build a bubble around yourself and you encapsulate yourself with that community. Well, as I had transitioned out of law enforcement and I still stay very much in contact with the people I've served with over time, I would get these phone calls like, Hey man, how did you do it? And, you know, for your listeners. And I think that most people would, would probably appreciate this. The last handful of years, maybe starting COVID definitely during COVID and everything else in between um, our governments and our, our, uh, news agencies and our leaders have failed and absolutely failed first responders, particularly law enforcement, having worn the, you know, the badge and the gun and swore an oath for a long period of time. Those public servants who are who are just that people who want to serve their communities um, now feel like, you know what, I, I'm ready to I'm ready to give all this up. It's not worth the stress. It's not worth the everything that comes with it politically now. And how do I get over into business? And I say, you know, like you can you can absolutely repackage all of those tools, the you know, the verbal clues, the the posturing, the understanding how to de-escalate a situation, how, but it's, it's all about communication. So much of, of business is just that is communication and first responders learn that because you're dealing with typically the worst of humanity, especially from a law enforcement perspective, or if you were a firefighter or a nurse or teacher, you know, you're, you're always packaging up somebody else's problem, if you would, and trying to find a solution of how to overcome that. And if you can do that in the business world, you just given yourselves a leg up because that's what we do. We solve other people's problems for them and we make money to do that. Um, and I believe that, you know, people who have that public service heart, the reason they go into those industries in the first place, it makes them customer service driven whenever they come to the business side. And that's how you start to build a good book of business. And that's how you get a good rapport with your clients um, and the work ethic that comes along with it as well. You grind it out for so many years making peanuts. Well, now take that same ambition and energy and repackage it and come over and try to make a decent living and something like sales as to what we do. Yeah, I want to touch on on a couple of things that you just said. I got one I'll, I'll circle around the two later because I have I have a I have a series of books that I I recommend and and push out to my team on a regular basis, and then any professional I know that that asks for reading material to improve themselves as a professional. My top four books that I send to everybody are all written by CIA operative. Two of them, one is a former law enforcement agent, and one is is military background. Um, but what I wanted to touch on first is we spoke about this earlier and you, and you just spoke to it again, sort of that the the chain of command and recognizing hierarchy and memorizing, you know, pages and pages of procedures before you take action in, in a first response situation. 
And when you're used to that, knowing, you know, I've, I've spent my whole life in the private industry. I, I've, I've been around my whole family's military and I've, I've, you know, worked in the firearms industry, but I will not pretend for one instant that I understand that lifestyle. Cause I, it's just, like you said, I, I have not been ingrained with that sort of process in my life. And so I guess it's more of a question to you. Is it something where, um, because everything is so procedural, because there is so much bureaucracy, red tape or whatever you want to say, like you have to do this and this and this and you know, take these actions before you take your next step. Is that sort of a, one of the primary barriers that has to be overcome before you move into private industry is instead of knowing what the next step is, you are just kind of winging it. You're like, I'm intuitively recognizing the situation and then coming up with my own process as I move along. Is that kind of what, 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 what one of the big barriers is there? Yeah. You know, you, when you come out of law enforcement, you've been so used, you you were told what to do. Right. For, for me, let's, I'm going to go back to my young trooper days. You were told what area to work, um, what to look out for, how to report it, how to document it. When you got to court, then, you know, you've had all these other legal proceedings that you had to follow. Um, when you, when you get into a business environment, you're presented a problem. But then you're not looking for somebody saying, how do I fix this? And what about steps to what you get to say, what do I think is the best way to get from point A to point B in the most effective manner possible? And here's the other thing that I realized, too, from my time in law enforcement. Simpler sometimes is better. We don't need to overcomplicate the problem. We need to use a common sense approach. And if I've got a buyer and seller, let's say we're talking about a, a transaction, where is that middle ground that we can bring them together to facilitate a transaction for them? And how fast and effective can I do that? And am, am I meeting both people's expectations, right? Um, and so I, and just in my experience, you cut all the clutter up, clutter out, get rid of all the fluff. And you get straight down to business and coming back from that law enforcement perspective, it, it's just learning how to get to an end goal much quicker, much more effectively. But I'm the one who gets to control that. And I don't have to follow all these different, I don't have to ask my sergeant, lieutenant, captain, or major for permission. I don't, and I don't have to wait that time. You are all of those as your own business. Um, and you get to make those decisions. Yeah. It's kind of the, it's a, that's a huge paradigm shift, right. To where, where you're going from, I know when I wake up, you know, I'm getting up at five in the morning, I'm working out, I'm going to do my thing. And then I report to, you know, whoever I report to. And I, you know, I know the task for the day, do those every day. These are the things that I do. This is how I do it. If the situation changes, like I've read the book, I know exactly if the situation changes to this, I take this new action. And when you move, especially let's talk about from, from, like a, a real estate perspective where you own your own business. You, like you, you work for a company, but you're a private contractor and whatever you do is kind of up to you to where mm -hmm. it's, you wake up and have fun, you know, good luck. Whatever yeah. you come up with from there is sort of your process. And that that's a huge shift, right? I mean, that's like, it, I, I, I want to come up with the right words. I don't have. Well, them. you know, so one of the one of the reasons, the main reasons that people stay unhappy in their 
positions as a as a government employee or a servant, because I, I do think that these individuals are servants, is that there's a sense of uh, stability with a paycheck and a pension. But I'm here to tell you is that once you can can realize that you can create financial stability at a, at a quicker rate for your family it, than you could staying in government for 30 years. Once you, once you get past that barrier, like I can do this, I can make a good living. I can still put just as much money back in my retirement account and I'm still going to cover health insurance. Then that's the, that's the biggest part right there. Like there, there is another way to provide to your family. Um, and I believe that's, that's the hurdle. Number one is just getting away from that, that, that steady peg that you've always gotten your entire life, going into a commission-based industry, like, like we are. Um, but once you get past it, things get so much easier for you. If you just realize that if I remain conservative in my finances, and I stay focused on my goals, then the sales will come. Um, but that it's a, it's a, you've got to have some faith. You've got to have faith in yourself. Right. And, and so I mentioned before, as you were talking, I, I you know, I mentioned that there were, there were four books that I, that I pitch every time anybody talks to me. And, and those are the first one I will recommend to people is extreme ownership uh, by, you know, authors. Jocko yeah. Willick, you know, that yeah. I, I, I do the Jocko voice whenever I'm messing around and talking to my friends that are like, <laughs> like when I was in this situation in this room and it was an extreme situation. Like he has a very, but it, so the, 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 with extreme ownership, you're talking about how in, especially in military circles where you are responsible for everything, whether you like mm-hmm. it or not, you are responsible for your actions. You're responsible for the action to those below you. And you're even responsible for the actions for those above you, because you have to manage up. You have to tell your leadership what's going on in your situation so that they can properly guide you. And if you haven't done that, you won't get the right directions. And so it's taking that. And it's, I would, I would call that one of the most challenging skills for anybody to develop because it's so easy to blame other people. And once you'd realize that everything is your fault, then you start taking accountability. I also recommend a book called the like switch, which was created by a, a hostage international hostage negotiator on recognizing micro uh, expressions and mm-hmm. and micro behaviors in order to build rapport and sort of shift focus and and so along with that uh, verbal judo which was recommended which was written by a police officer on de-escalation and building rapport especially in hostile situations so you spoke to that with with sales and the emotional aspect of sales is a big one or sorry I got the, the like switch was actually I got the author wrong that was a CIA operative that did counterintelligence and then never split the difference is the other one that was written by a hostage negotiator. That's where I got it wrong. Um, but all four of those books, I feel are probably the four most valuable books I have ever put down with business. And they all come from that background. Right. And so all of those skills that you just spoke to, it's like, okay, yeah, there's connections there throughout. Um, what does it look like when, when you are sort of going into a sales situation, because that's what we're talking about here, where, you have a police background, you have, um, you have a background in recognizing and de-escalating situations and how that applies to sales. Like what is, what does that do for you as a professional? So I use that. I, I use de-escalation tactics on a weekly basis. Um, I'll give you a little, a little background on a particular transaction. 
so there was a farm. Uh, there was multiple family members who had inherited a farm from their from their father, and we were looking at a, a five million dollar transaction. Well, two of the brothers um, of a six member interest in the property got into a very heated debate uh, there on the floor uh, while myself and one of the other associates were sitting there over the terms and purchase price of the property to the, to the, it, it boiled up to the uh, point where we really thought they were going to go to blows right there in front of us. But having seen that so many times in my law enforcement career, it was keep your composure stay cool, stay focused, de-escalate. And so those, all of those traits kicked in at that moment. And we had separated the two parties, taken one outside and he, he agreed to leave and we left one inside and we started to start to renegotiate the deal, get back into it. And although that was somewhat of an extreme uh, circumstance on a, on a traditional basis, um, oftentimes we're, we're talking everybody's emotions down over the phone from one transaction to the other, um, whether it be buyer or seller, or in my case, I deal with a lot of developers who can get heated real quick because there's a lot of money on the stake, but you've got to keep your composure. You've got to stay cool. You've got to realize that it's a business transaction. It's nothing personal, just like it was on the road. Um, where if I encountered somebody who was an aggressor, there wasn't anything personal to me, but they saw a uniform and they had their own agenda. And, um, you've got to, you've got to keep that, that barrier in between you so that you never get worked up, that you're always the one who is controlling the situation, controlling the tempo, bringing everybody back down, stay in the course. Yeah, and, and and that's I I really I I like that approach too, where where you're the cool, calm, and collected one. I've I've worked you know working in real estate now. That's from from the agent's perspective. That's the paramount skill is bringing people back down. I laugh about it because when I've done my own transactions in real estate, I'm usually as the customer or as the client. I go in and it's like almost my job to blow things up, right? It's like, no, I don't like this deal. Like this is a this is a horrible. I'm not going to do this request. This is asking too much. And and I had luckily an agent who was like the most cool, calm, and collected person I've ever met in my life, saying, "Okay, I understand your perspective. Now let's find a solution." It, like if I didn't have that, I would have nuked like three deals. And so, <laughs> you know, it's it's one of those things where like you you recognize the need for that and and being sort of the cool, calm center of everything. You know, and, and two, uh, in real estate, you've got to have a lot of very difficult conversations with people and you've got to be willing to go that route with them. Um, and again, coming coming from a law enforcement perspective, we did it on a daily basis, right? You, you, We were always the babysitters for adults, unfortunately. And and so as you transition over to, to like business, to be able to, to meet that that demand head on um in a contentious conversation but 
trying to get to that end goal where that seller needs to be. Cause that's, that's typically where most of the emotions come from is from that seller. Um, being direct and honest and fact-based is a, a huge trait when it comes to sales. Yeah. Cause I mean, and it's, I feel like a lot of people look at sales as actual selling instead of being an informational consultant. You're there to assist and help somebody through a decision-making process rather than, Hey, what can I do to get you into this car today? You That's know, exactly right. Yeah. It's, 100%. It's a, it's a relationship, right? Like it's, it's relationship management is, is really what it comes down to. And that practice, that de-escalation and rapport building are sort of invaluable to that. Right. Yep. Yeah. And, you know, go back to like you've already missed it, um, uh, those interview tactics, right? Those you're you're looking for those subtle clues in a person's demeanor, um, either verbally or physically that you can pick up on that, you know, how to switch your conversations at a particular time during that interaction with that that individual. And it can go from posturing to mirroring to building that rapport. If somebody's closed up, you can tell it. If they're opening up, you can sense it. Um, that when you start to hit a sensitive topic that you know that might uh, derail the conversation, you can pivot that conversation to stay on track. Um, there's a lot of of qualities that you bring over from, from, you know, the public or the, the government side over into the, uh, to the business world and leveraging that on the day to day, uh, will make you an excellent salesperson. Yeah. I having, having done sales a lot in, in my history too, like there's, and like I mentioned, my, my, my books that I read, like, you know, I didn't have the, the, the career experience, but the, the tools like mirroring and, uh, you know, mimicking body language are, it, it, you can't overemphasize how useful those are in a sales situation. Because again, if you look at it as it's not necessarily sales, you're starting a relationship and you are building rapport and, and trying to get them to realize you're there to help. And so you, you do, you recognize that when somebody goes into a closed posture, you can mirror that closed posture until they feel more comfortable and they start opening back up. They'll never tell you that they don't like what you're saying, but they'll cross their arms and lean back or they'll, or they'll, or they'll purse their lips or they'll cross their legs or they'll turn away from you. You see those little things. And if, when you're cued in to recognize those things, you can turn the conversation so quickly because all you got to do is like, cool, I'm going to cross my arms too. And we're both in the same boat and now we're getting comfortable again. And then, then you can pull it back and you can lean forward and open your arms and then they'll do the same when, and you, you know, you've got them kind of, you're not an adversary when they start kind of mimicking you. It, like it's really subtle like that, but when you're cued in to do that automatically, you don't even have to try and, so, and you're automatically building that rapport and it's very valuable. Um, I kind of wanted to ask you too, you spoke to the routines of of that lifestyle, you know, especially with military, especially with with law enforcement officers where, you know, you have a set routine and you go into this you go into this cycle every day and you know exactly what to expect next. How do you pivot from that to coming up with your own routine and and sort of what are the steps to that? Like, how do you get over the hump of like, what do I do next? You have to build your own playbook. You, you know, mine, and I've got it up here on my bullet board. Uh, it says, get out of the office, network, knock on doors, stay focused. 
And those are my, you know, my top bullet points that help me frame up my day to day. And when I go in every week, I go in setting my schedule because I am, I, I, I like to be a creature of habit. Um, that comes along with those 15 years. And I want to know what my day is going to pan out to look like. Now, sometimes that gets derailed, but you just overcome and adapt. Um, but I've got a series of follow-ups. I've got a series of um, tasks that's going to be completed throughout week and everything is jotted down and I'm going to try to execute and get it done within this time frame. And that's the other thing is that, you know, coming from, from that background, my reports had to be done by a specific time, sometimes most of the time by the end of the day and or by the end of the week. And so you're, ta you're a task driven person. And if you bring over that, those organizational skills to stay on, on, on point, when you come over to the business world, honestly, it puts you well ahead of your peers because you're punctual. People can count on you. You know that you're going to show up. You know you're going to knock out your projects within the, the allotted time frame. Um, and you don't need somebody watching you over your shoulder to make sure that you're completing your work. So all these skills transition over and it makes you a highly valuable employee. So I'm, I'm, I'm wanting to put you on the spot now a little bit with, with sort of your day to day. What, what does your day to day, do, do you have, cause I realize in sales, you always have to be ready to adjust and your, mm -hmm. your day is never going to be the same, but do you have a structure of your days that enables you to get the task done that you need to do and do the networking that you need to do? And what does that sort of schedule look like? And what are those time yeah. blocks? So my my day to day is get up anywhere between five and five thirty. Um, spend a little time in the Bible. I'm big into getting at least thirty minutes in. Doing a workout following that um, at least two to three times a week minimum, or always something active during the day. Um, I like to hit the ground at eight o'clock, if not earlier. And um, at that point in time. You know, I am trying to make sure if there's any unfinished task that piled up the following day, they get knocked out first. And then there's a whole list of people who I'm going to follow up, which is anywhere between 10 and 15, making sure that all of my deadlines are being hit for all of my deals. That's priority number three. Emails are four. Projects are five. Um, but two days a week, I spend time networking. So Tuesday mornings, I've got a men's group that I go network with, and they're all business leaders uh, from out the triangle. And then on Thursdays, I try to meet up with somebody to have lunch, coffee, catch up, and they're going to be a land acquisition manager from this company or a developer over here or somebody who's got a lot of contacts in the community. Um, and so I stick with that routine. Nine times out of 10, that's what my anticipation is going into a week. Now, my phone can ring at any given time and I've got to go put a fire out on a deal. Um, and you've got to pivot and, and that's okay. Uh, and, and that's the other thing is that when problems come your way, you just realize that it's just one little obstacle that you know, that's going to be there at some point in time. You just got to get over it. And again, having come from, from that background, you realize where, where is a time to panic or, you know, or to be rushed? 
But where is the time to go, huh? I mean, this is just another life's obstacle or business obstacle. It's going to happen. Keep your calm, knock it out, get back on track. And, you know, just knowing throughout life what's truly important to get worked worked up on and what's not, that's really, really helped me out in my professional career. I was going to say catastrophizing is really, really easy to do. And it's oh, 100%. I, I cannot think of a single instance in my life or my marriage, right? Where, where catastrophizing helps, <laughs> but I, I've never had a, I've never had a situation where it's like, you know, you know, what really helped me right there was freaking absolutely out. Like, so it's, it's, but it's, that's like the natural human response. Like we're, we're fighting our human nature when those things happen. Um, you mentioned, staying organized on doing callbacks and sort of solving business problems and keep keeping deadlines. What do you use to cue yourself to make those callbacks? And what do you use to, to know when and how your deadlines are and how do you prompt yourself to know? Like, Cause I mean, for myself, I'll have callbacks, I'll have emails that I need to respond to. And, and, you know, sometimes it happens, sometimes it doesn't depending on the problem that arises during the day. So how do you keep those things organized for yourself? So for me, I mean, it's a lot of the tools that we have with our company. Um, Google Task helped me with my task. And I know that I need to knock those out and they transition well from PC to my phone, which my phone has now become, you know, my ultimate notepad. Um, and then, you know, the follow-up boss that we have internally, that helps me set those reminders that I need to be reaching out to these people all over again getting those notifications going, Oh yeah, let me get, let me send this person a quick text message. Okay. So, so and we're talking about a CRM system here. That's a CRM. Yeah. yeah. So um, yeah, I use, I use the, I use a lot of uh, automated um, electronic processes or apps to help keep me focused. But at the same token, when I have an idea or I'm working on a project, the old school pen and pencil, um, I jot it down. I like to map it out. And one of the things that uh, always helped me when I was doing criminal investigations, I I got into doing outlaw motorcycle gang theft, interstate commerce, and we were chasing large groups of people up and down the East Coast. And I would grab these just really big notepads, like the drawing pads, and I would draw out all the key players, draw out all the different locations and start to visually map out you know, how the crimes were committed, where they're committed and start to heat map that, that continues to help me right now, even through deal processes or, you know, now that I wear this new hat for a director, internal processes that we're building, that's how I map out these things. And, And then it helps you visualize, you know, are you really putting all the pieces of the puzzle together? And the other thing too, that we haven't mentioned is, Backfinding, um, and this is going to transition really well from all those other industries that we talked about. Is that you know we are very very much on on the commercial division, the commercial side. You have to dig hard into um, the unified development ordinances of a town. You have to look at the zoning restrictions. You have to look at the development standards. You have to read deeds and search for easements and um, access to properties. So you do a lot of your time researching. A lot of research goes into one deal to make sure it's either a good or bad transaction. Um, 
And if it wasn't for my time in investigations, I wouldn't quite honestly know how to find half this information. But that has taught me how to go out and search. And then canvassing is another big thing. So if I want to get in touch with a landowner, but I can't find any contact information, I know that the community is my best source. So I start knocking on doors, just like I did if I was looking for somebody years ago. Um, and you knock on one door, you get a little piece of information, you go to the next house, you knock on that door, you get a little piece of information. Eventually, you'll find the person that you need to talk to. Um, and that's how we really go after, you know, getting in touch with landowners, especially if we've got a buyer in tow. But it goes back to that that canvassing approach that I took from my law enforcement days to pull all that together and having the moxie to go up to somebody's house down a long driveway and they know you got a dog tied up in the front yard. Like, are you willing to do it? Yeah, I've done that plenty of times. I was going to say that 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 one can be extremely intimidating. And I think it does help when when from the scenario that you just talked to, you're able to go up and talk to somebody and you're not even talking about them, right? What can you tell right. me about the landowner down the way? I'm just trying to find out some information. It's not even about you. And like that, that could, that's a de-escalator right there. And, and, and even there, you're even looking to set up an introduction. Like, Hey, can you introduce us? Because I don't want to go walk and knock. Like I'm coming to you, but can you introduce me to them? Because if I go straight to them, then, you know, that's, I've got nobody referring me and, and it's cold. And so like you're, you're getting your set up there and you're, you're building that rapport in, in their center of influence, right. Or their, their circle of influence and, and trying to build that up. Like, but I, I, I guess I never would have thought about that, but that's exactly what investigation investigators do on a day-to-day basis. Right. I mean, like, that's the exact kind of thing. And, and if you apply that too to, um, you know, fact finding takes place in EMTs. You know, if, if something happens to a family member, you're asking other family members what happened to them and how that happened and trying to problem solve there. You're even asking questions about like, what's their genetic history? What's their family history with this disorder? And like, so you're conducting fact finding military, same thing. You have to understand what's going on in the situation around you. What, you know, what, what is the situation now and what are you desiring that situation to be? And what could, what could enemy combatants do or, or, you know, similar things go across all of those, all of those sort of skills. That's exactly right. And you, you know, those servants who come out of government work, they know how to ask questions. And if you're always asking questions rather than, you know, feeding or trying to to feed information to the other party. If you're asking questions, people are always willing to talk with you. People love to tell you their life story. They love to tell you history of the property, love to tell you about the community, or they like to really tell you about their neighbors. And um, <laughs> it's just always asking the right questions to be able to, to be able to get that information that you need to put something together. So what do you feel are the most valuable skills that that you come out of, you know, we'll call it service, right? Just serving, you know, not service industry. That's more like, you know, finance, stuff like that, but, but servants, public servants, yep. what are some of the most valuable skills? I feel like we've already talked to those, but what are the, the, the sort of paramount skills that you come out of? Well, and I think you just, you just hit it. They, those individuals are built by nature, by God, however you want to look at it to serve other people. And if you take that mindset and approach on a day-to-day basis and you re- and you bring that over to the customer service industry, you've you're you're going to win it. 
you're absolutely going to win because you're going to call people back. You're going to be honest and direct with them. You're always going to have their best interest in mind, which let's just be honest. Not all real estate does that. Um, and then, you know, you're going to be accountable to the people that are your customers, the people that you serve. And I think that that is some of the number one drivers that's going to make any person successful in any industry they go into. If you're willing to serve other people and not be self-served, you will win. So I went about this backwards. Normally you want to start out with the negative and end with the positive, but I already went with the positive. So let's, <laughs> so what, what are some of the negatives that you have to overcome in making this transition? Um, it's scary at first. It is, it's absolutely scary to just leave the security of a full-time paying job that you know that regardless of how the economy goes, most likely you're going to get a paycheck. That's the security of working for the government. But this is what I tell a lot of people. Number one, you're probably going to make twice or three times as much in sales or in business that you did working as a public servant. Um, don't worry about insurance. You've got other places like, you know, Christian healthcare. And I use MediShare. That has been a fantastic opportunity for me. It saves me a ton of money. It's been a great resource. Don't worry about insurance. Don't worry about your retirement because most people don't realize that a government pension only pays 4% guaranteed every single year. Well, if you take that same amount of money and you go put it into an IRA yourself, or if you are an independent contractor like we are, we have our own businesses so I can start my own, my own uh, self-employment IRA, I can put back a lot more money and make a lot more interest on that money over time. So there you just got to realize that it's out there for you. Just got to know that the information exists, find the people in the industry who's made that transition, who can talk you through it to make sure that you're comfortable and your family's comfortable with the transition. But I can tell you this, I lay down beside my wife every night. I'm not working the roads until early in the morning. She's not getting that phone call going, Hey hun, um, it's going to be a while. We were, we've got something going on. She get the, she used to get those phone calls a lot. Um, and I get to see my kids all the time. Um, and so there's so many benefits of being in this industry. You get to make your own hours. And that's a, that's a big thing, too. Um, but we definitely need people out there serving our public um, day in and day out. But the ones who are looking to make a transition, I'm just here to say that it's possible. You spoke to this at at the front, and I feel like it's a it's a good topic to cover is sort of the the public servant professions under fire. and And we saw it. We saw it with with police officers sort of coming under fire for like, you know, our police officers, bad guys, and they didn't get support politically because politicians are going to do politics and they're going to go with whatever the newest headline is. You got you got military with with sort of you know doing enforcement overseas and getting criticism for that, and you just got soldiers following orders, and then you know you have police officers, generally public servants, doing the best that they can, and then then getting negative headlines that impact the good officers that are out there that are put in bad situations, and you know there's a, an enormous amount of stress, and then you have. You have nursing, right? During the COVID thing, nurses took fire for just doing their jobs and getting 
paid and doing what they were told and and trying to do the best they can in an extreme situation. And and I would say you even have it now. Teachers are coming under fire for doing their jobs. And so you have all these public servants, which are really the last people we should be attacking. Right. right. But but now they're under stress. You mentioned, right, like the, the pay can, the pay can be higher in, in, in private sector you know, they're, they're not making the greatest amount of money for the time that they put in They're They're under constant stress. They're like now, and now you have public and political attacks, you know, people using them as fodder for talking points. Right. What do you have to say to those industries if they are contemplating? And I hate to say this too, because I, what I don't want to do is say like, don't go into public service because it's <laughs> one of the most needed things that we have, but there's people that are getting burnt out. And yeah. so, so what would you have to say to them? you know, being in those situations, if they are contemplating a change. Well, so you, you're, you're opening up a whole can of worms here. I, know, I don't want to get to it's a very passionate thing for me. Absolutely passionate thing. But <laughs> I, I will say, I, honestly, I, I believe that every American should have to go serve in a public service capacity of some sort. Number one, if it wasn't, if, if I wasn't forced to make a change in my early twenties, um, out of real estate and then go in. I, I don't, I wouldn't have had the structure that I currently have in my life right now. I wouldn't be where I currently am now if it wasn't for getting that discipline that I truly needed, getting the grit that I needed to become an adult. So I, I, I'm an advocate to say, look, I wish everybody would have to serve in our armed forces or some kind of public capacity because I've been through it somewhat and I think you should. Um, now, having said that, our leaders in this country have failed us 100%. And that's political leaders, people who are responsible for our news outlets, um, our community leaders, um, when it comes to the Board of Education. People have absolutely failed anybody under their command or authority or who reports to them because the people who do the day to day job are doing it because they have a servant's heart because they got into the industry because they want to help people, not hurt people. And they're following the guidelines. Number one, that they were given that is 99.9%, especially I'm just going to speak from a law enforcement perspective because that's what I know the best. Um, but yes, I was, I was working with the Homeland security task force office when Ferguson happened and once you start to see the intel reports come back and you started to analyze what that officer did during that particular time, he was following his training, his protocols and his processes for that incident at that moment. He did what he was trained to do. But yet the government came after him and that agency at full force. And if anybody goes back and look now at the debrief years later, they'll realize, <laughs> yeah, he was in the right to do what he did. But yet they put him on the public crucible because he was an easy escape good. What I've seen in my career when I first came in, and which is it's it's a training that everybody should go through is is profile. What does profiling truly look and exist like now profiling? It's, it's reversed profiling now that that people, especially in law enforcement, to wear a, a gun and badge every day, they're immediately pointed to as the bad guys, immediately, without any fact-finding information built around it. Um, there's a handful of agencies out there whose top brass has supported their men or women 
who've been in critical incidents and they were supportive of that entire time. There's a lot more out there who faltered under political pressure and our faulty news agencies, and they have destroyed lives, destroyed people's lives. So there's, and I, and I think our first responders will know that we're speaking the truth when we're talking about this because we just don't have a voice right now. It was silenced on social media. It was silenced in the news agencies. So there was no way to get it out. Um, but these people are here to serve. I've, I've had the opportunity to be around firemen, police officers. My wife is a former school teacher, so we were in that for 15 years. Um, these people are built to serve, and that's what they should do. That's what makes a society uh, function, right? That's how we get by on a day-to-day. But um, that change has to come from the top, and it also has to come from our society saying, you know what, we're sick of this. This is not true. The stigma is not true. Law enforcement isn't broken. Um, there's something to be said maybe for our justice system somewhat, but, um, you know, the people who work day in and day out, man, they've got grit. They have got grit and God knows we need them and we need them to continue doing the right thing. Um, society needs them because if we don't have a way to police ourselves, what do we get? Anarchy, right? Um, and nobody wants to raise a child in that environment. I don't care what your demographics look like. Um, and so, you know, but if if you've served your time and you feel like that you've gotten burnt out and your heart is no longer in it, and that's the key thing, is your heart is no longer in it, there is another path for you. You don't have to sit, sit there in misery and there are options. You just have to realize that you can package up what you've learned, what you've experienced, put them into to practice into the business world and be successful doing it. I was going to say that's such a such a poignant thing to to bring up is that the training that you have in public service, there are extremely leverageable skills that you have. You do have a parachute and you don't have to be I mean, everybody's worried about a transition in life and transitions are always scary. Change is always scary, but you have ingrained processes in your head that you don't even realize that you have that are extremely useful in the private sector or running your own business or starting something up. You know, it's like you said, de-escalation, forming processes, able to stick to a plan, taking accountability, all those kind of things. I mean, if you could teach those four things to people in the private sector, you would have a much more functional private sector. And, and I mean, you, you spoke to some, some valuable things there too, as far as just leadership, right. Where you're seeing a toxic toxification of public sector employees. And I, and I call it, I call it call out culture, or, or I used to refer to it as the bus, to- bus tossing competition where like when people, when you are in, when you're in an industry and you can take any office, any office on the planet, any business on the planet, and, and you start doing public chastisement of employees, you're, building a great culture takes a really long time, but destroying a culture takes just a couple of days. And you start doing public chastisement of employees and putting them up in front of everybody and making an example of them. You're done. Like the morale of that entire industry, that entire organization goes downhill. And for the most part, I feel like public sector employees understand that they understand praise in public chastise in private. 
and mm-hmm. and the problems are to be corrected not you know you don't need a wrist slap you need a solution and and those kind of mentalities serve so well building the next leaders their skill sets that public servants have that other people don't just ingrained into them other people have to go out and earn it and find it and public servants have it and and those skills are leverageable coming out of the gate right 100% i mean you completely nailed it um there's you just can't teach moral character I don't think you can. I think you can help it, but you can't teach it. Um, and then, so the ones who go and try to use that moral character for the greater good, man, I mean, they're powerful individuals. Um, and so they bring a lot to the business world and they often find a lot of success here. Excellent, man. Well, any, any kind of, you know, parting words here is, is again, I want to be respectful of your time. We're kind of moving up on the hour. Um, any, any kind of parting words here? Um, you know, just to reiterate, we, we absolutely need individuals to help us run our society. I'm not asking them to, to jump ship by any means because we need good ones. <laughs> I was going to say, need, we don't want to talk people out of it. Yeah. No, we don't want to talk people out of it because we need people to, <laughs> to obviously replace some of the top brass who hasn't fulfilled their job and mission. Um, but if you it definitely if if they have hit their glass ceiling and they're looking for a change, um, it is it is absolutely possible. I highly encourage it. Um, just consider all the things that we've talked about here today. Those books that you've mentioned, a number of them I've read. I think that they do transition very very well over into the uh, into the private industry, um, and you can do it. You can absolutely do it. It just takes a little investigation and a little courage. Excellent. Well, Corey, very much appreciate your time. As always, man, um, we'll, we'll have you on here again soon. Thank you, Matt. Appreciate it. This concludes episode number 67 for the National Land Realty Podcast, discussing the skills that are developed by first responders that can enable them to create highly successful careers in the private sector. You can learn more about land ownership and the buying and selling of land at nationalland.com.